welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Lyndon Frearson for his message. Many of you would know we've been working through as a church the book of Colossians. And the reason we do this as a church is that it's important sometimes to actually sit down with an entire book and read it all together and understand what it's saying to us. As someone who preaches or teaches, it's actually really easy if, if, if you get given a call to sort of say, oh, look, could you preach a word on mission or could you preach a word on healing or preach a word on, on a theme? Because then you get to go through the Bible and you get out the concordance and you select out all the, all the verses that reference healing. And you go, well, there you go and collect them together. And to some extent, you get to project upon the word of God, your own views and values as you pull that together. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but we have to be really careful that as a church and as, as Christians, we don't do that too often because we start to lose sight of the fact that the Bible is 66 books. There's an awful lot of words in there and they've all been put there for a reason. And so when I get a, got the call from Ben to sort of say, oh, look, could you preach on this particular weekend and the verses that I'd like you to preach on are Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 to 29 I was a little bit disheartened because Dave Keen had got the really good verses the week before (laughs) so 15 to 20 is this fantastic statement of faith about who God is and what he is and then I got all the guff at the end and I was like oh that sucks (laughs) and so you sort of sit there and, and you you have to then be compelled to sit down and really read it and go, well, hang on. Why are these words here? Now, we know that Paul, as someone who writes letters, he's, he's, anytime he could see a sentence that could be written in five words, he'd invariably choose 18 words to, to use it. He'd always add in an extra couple of uh, words at the end or then say something and then re-say the, the same thing over and over in different ways. And it sort of can leave you at times a little bit confused as to why Paul is putting those, those words and those phrases together. He always sets up his letters with a long-winded introduction and it's a little, little bit like an Oscars speech. He thanks everyone that he's met along the way and asks them all to, to talk to each other. And then he says a bit about what the letter's for and then he goes through and gives a whole series of instructions. And in fact, one of the important parts as Christians is that a lot of what Paul is writing are instructions as to how to live. And if you read the NIV translation, for example, in chapter 2 and 3 of Colossians, it actually has a little subheading under one of the verses which says, "An instruction, instructions for life. It's the how-to manual. And we as humans are really good with how-to manuals. We like that. We like to be told what it is that we need to do, when we need to do it, and if we just follow the steps, everything works really well. But sometimes, sometimes that's not what we actually need. Now, we're going to read together all of the words from uh, Colossians 1, 21 through 29, because I think it's important to read them together as a church, Um, You don't have to speak them out loud, but at least read them at the same time. And we're going to read it all to see what it actually says together. Verse 21. And bearing in mind that he just read, he just made a statement of faith about who Christ was. 
This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance that you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servants to proclaim it. I'm glad when I suffer for you, for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glories of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of, your, of his glory, or sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty work power that works within me. So there's lots of stuff there and when I read those words, it's sort of, I don't... I didn't really understand why they're there because it's a lot of Paul telling you that he's suffering, um, that, it's, that this is all, it's all good for you, it's going to be there at the end. But really he wants to do is to get you onto the how-to bit afterwards. And he wants to get us onto the how-to bit because he knows that the Jews had spent several thousand years defining their faith by having a set of rules. And that's, I mean, that, that's the whole of Deuteronomy is, is rules and, and lists of laws and stuff that are laid, laid out for them. And he knew that humankind desired structure and lessons and that we very quickly forget the things of the past. And you know this is true. We all read sort of 25 steps to having a better marriage and 12 steps to raise a child and 15 steps to have a healthier heart and 14 steps for a better diet. Like it's, we love those 12 step things. Every New Year's Eve, we all make resolutions about how we're going to change our life. We go to the gym and get a personal trainer and they set out a, a strategy for you. I, I haven't actually ever been to a gym or had a personal trainer. I'm taking it that other people do go to the gym and do steps and stuff. But the whole point is that there's a, there's a process and a set of rules and if you follow those to the end, things will work out for you. You'll get the abs that you always desired. Many of us know that when you start following those steps, everything goes really well for a while, but then you forget and you make the change and you're like, oh yeah, I know that there was those 14 steps for my better diet, but I'm just going to, I'm going to a birthday party tonight, so I'll just deviate for a little bit. And then once I've deviated once, I'll deviate again and we lose track of what those steps were and why it was important to our life. And this is very much part of the human condition. For thousands of years, people have been debating how it is that we should live as humans. 
the sort of five, oh, about roughly 3,000 years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotelian thought, so Aristotle coined a, a, a series of thought about how one should live in the world. And the framing was something called virtue ethics is how we describe it now. And virtue ethics sort of says that each of us, there, there is a series of virtues in life that each of us should aspire to. We should aspire to be good people. We should aspire to be um, more generous. And generosity is a virtue. That we should aspire to be better in our relationships. And that those virtues are things that if we aspire to, if we became, the, became they become sort of the, the rules that we follow then our lives will be better as a result of that. But the, the challenge with that virtue ethics over, over generations as people thought about that was that it didn't then necessarily give a connection to well, what happens with other people because we're not just islands, we, we're part of a society. And so a school of thought started to develop around something called consequentialism or utilitarianism. Because virtue ethics about what I do Consequentialism is about, well, what happens, what is the result of my actions? And consequentialism, it in summary, says, well, you can do what you need to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else or it hurts the least number of people. So as, as long as you, you can do whatever you want in your life, but as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, the consequences are minimised, that's Okay. And utilitarianism is sort of a subset of that and it sort of talks about, well, as long as you hurt the, the fewest number of people, if you have to make a choice in life, you should make the choice that has the lowest impact. And so there's a famous ethical dilemma that's put up. If you're, the, you're a train driver and you're on a train barrelling down some tracks, you've got 50 passengers on board, and up ahead of you there's one person standing in the middle of the tracks and you've got a choice to make. You can deviate, you can, you can cause the train to derail, but you run the risk of injuring all of your passengers, but you'll save the person on the track. Or you can plough through the person on the track, kill them, but you'll keep your passengers alive. And this is, these are challenging problems to work through. And utilitarianism would say, well, you need to save the most number of people, so, so just plough down that person in front of you. And we've seen that used, governments and others have used utilitarianism to shape the world in which we operate and make decisions about how we behave. But people started to realise that that didn't give... That put a lot of power into the hands of whoever was making those rules. And so a, a further school of thought called deontology comes together. And that sort of speaks to the ideas that there's some universal human truths about how we should behave ethically. And those human truths are things that we can all understand and we can all accept. And they're the sort of things like we all accept that it's generally a bad idea to kill another person. Um, it's generally a bad idea for brothers to hit their sisters. Eli and May, I'm looking at you too. But there's some universal truths that we all accept that are imparted upon us by something that, greater, that is greater than us as individuals. 
Now, the problem that exists, and I, and I have to confess, I'm, I'm covering the entire of like the entire framework of philosophical thought as its underpinning of the Western world is there's people far smarter than me who've done spent their entire lives describing it and I've sort of summarised it into five minutes. So forgive me if I haven't done it as justice. But one of the challenges of this mode of thinking and this sort of ethical framework as a set of rules to live by is that it keeps being focused around the how and not the why. And the logical conclusion at the end of following the how but not the why is nihilism. And nihilism is a phrase that was popularised by um, Nitschke. And Nitschke had spent an awful lot of time analysing sort of all the work that had gone before him and trying to understand, well, what did this all mean? And he concluded with his statement that God is dead and we murdered him. And what he meant was that we had so far removed the value of the greater from our society that ultimately we were in a position where the ultimate rules we followed were as long as it was okay for you, then everything's all right. And he realised in his analysis of how we operate that the hows were never going to be enough to support human endeavour. Now, why is all that important? Well, it's important because it actually manifests itself in how we operate today. It's manifest in how we operate, how I operate um, companies that I work in. It's that manifest in how we operate as a church. We, as a church, needed to step out and say, what is the why behind the how we do things? So we set out a vision statement. What is it that we believe and underpinning that vision statement is six words, connect, grow, serve, flourish, lead, influence. And it's important that they are on the walls in here because it allows us to have a constant reminder of, okay, why are we doing what we're doing? It allows us to be a check to everything that occurs. The board and the elders, when they're considering new initiatives or problems that have occurred in the church, can go back and say, well, let's measure this against our strategy. In business, this is true too. There's a guy called Simon Sinek. If you look, at, look him up, he's done some TED Talks at his university, or not university, very well regarded, very highly regarded in business strategy and aren't getting to why. And he does an analysis of Apple and Samsung and other big companies and says, well, the reason why Apple's been successful is because they didn't start off saying, focusing on what they did or how they did it, they focused on the why. They focused on the consumer, the customer, the person at the end. Whereas many of those other customers would tell you that they're really, or those other companies would tell you that they're really good at making this or making that. Apple's success was built on them going back to a core why. And we do that in our church with the vision statement. We did that with our mission program. And for those of you who were here earlier in the year, would recall that we, we sat down and said, well, look, why do we do mission? What is the underlying belief behind why we do mission? We said it's because we're commanded to go out and make disciples of the world. To make disciples of the world, we need to build relationship. We need to build relationship the way Christ did. The way we do that is to sit with people and to learn their language and to eat meals with them, to be part of their lives. And through that, they will grant us the right to influence their lives. 
We set that out as a strategy and then we use that to measure everything else we do against that. So the why is fundamental to to what we do and it's fundamental to how we operate. And when I go back to these verses, as much as I was initially frustrated that David got the good bits because that's the statement of faith, I started to realise that actually there was something really, really important that was contained within these eight verses from 21 through 29. And these verses were the bit that actually made all the verses before it suddenly relevant and it gave context to all the verses that go ahead. Because verses 15 to 20 of Colossians chapter 1 tell us who God is and tell us who Christ is. And that's a statement of fact that lays out, this is, this is what Christ did. So that's the what. That's what we believe. And the verses that go after it, all the instructions are how we are to live our life. But these short eight verses tell us something fundamental to who we are and to what we can be as individuals and as children of God. And that is the why Christ died in the first place. Why you are here, why you matter. Why are you in this church on a Sunday morning? Why do you need to be in this church on a Sunday morning? The why is at the heart of everything that is in the gospel. And these eight verses share some of that with us. When we look into those verses, we see fundamentally or very, very first... Well, why did Christ die for us? The statement of faith in 15 to 20 tells us Christ died for us. But why did he die for us? He died for us to reconcile ourselves with God. We often just think, well, he died for us to forgive our sins. Our sins are forgiven. But we miss the significance of the word reconcile. And the word reconcile is not just about forgiveness. It's an acknowledgement that after forgiveness, there's a desire to build a relationship post the action. So true reconciliation is, yes, I said sorry. Yes, I've been forgiven. But as now I want to be in relationship with you. One of the images I love out of the Old Testament in in chapter 3 in Genesis, it talks about God going in to the garden in the, the cooler hours of the afternoon to walk with Adam, his creation. What a, what a powerful concept that is, that our father would want to say, it's been a long day, sun's hot, I'm going to go out into the cool of my garden and walk with my chosen creation. To walk with, not to talk to or judge down upon but just to walk with Adam in the cool of the the garden because the ultimate desire of God at the end of that long day was to sit in his creation and just talk about the world that's the reconciliation that is being spoken of here 
the first why of this passage is that God wants to reconcile, wants to be reconciled with you. He wants to walk with you in the cool of the garden, to share your life, to hear what's on your mind, to wonder at, at the things that you're thinking and the things that are going through your life, to comfort you. That reconciliation is the first why. You are a creation of God and you are created to be in relationship with him and to be in a relationship that is about sharing with him. But we step from there and we say, well, what else is in that passage? And there's a second part to it. So not only were we to be reconciled with God, not only, as as it says in the verse there, Christ brought you over to God's side to put your lives together whole and holy in his presence. But in verse 27, it stretches out and says, for God wanted them to know that the riches uh, riches and glory of God are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you the assurance of sharing his glory. And there's two really important words in that sentence. Two, T-O-O, and sharing. Because what Paul is saying there is that, and this was very topical at the time, the world, the Jews thought the Messiah was just for them. And he was out there saying, no, it's for the Gentiles as well. Now, we don't have the Jew-Gentile definitions around us but we do have everyone else every one of your friends your families the communities we live in the people places we work the places we support overseas who don't know God yet this verse is saying no Christ is for them too not also now it's interesting that it uses the word too not also also implies well that's it's secondary it's it's primarily for you but it's for them also. By saying two, it implies an equality. It implies a, a, a status of peerage with those other people. That we are all equal in God's eyes and he wants us to be, he wants them to be part of his life too. And then the last of that, that verse is, this gives assurance of sharing his glory. His glory is not something to be consumed just by ourselves. It is fundamentally, fundamentally to be shared as part of a family. And this gives us our second why. Our why is that we are here to be part of a family. We were designed to be part of a family. God wants to walk in that cool garden with you but he also wants to walk in that cool garden with your brothers and sisters in Christ he wants you to know that you are part of a family and that's why it's important that we we are here and we get together as a family and we share in this time together but the third the third why it comes out in verse 28 and it's an extraordinarily powerful but simple message. 
is all about the completeness in Christ. In verse 28, so we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. So our, our first why is to be reconciled with our Father. Our second why is to be part of a family. And the third why is to go out. And as Paul described earlier in the verses, to, to suffer for Christ. But we are to go out actively to ensure that everyone is taught of the wisdom of God and to present them to God as perfect in their relationship with Christ. That's, that's our why. When we go, when we look later in Colossians and as we go through it in the weeks ahead and we learn about all the things we are supposed to be doing, when we read those books about how to be a better husband or father or wife or mother or how to be a better employee, how to get fitter and faster and healthier, how to eat better, when we think through all of those 12-step guides, all of those hows are nothing without being understanding, uh, without being able to understand the singularity of why. Absolutely nothing. As, as Nitschkid said, with, with, if you can't understand the why, if you can't articulate a why, it's all dead. And this why is the bit that matters. You are created to be reconciled with God, to be in relationship with him, to commune with him, to talk with him, to share your life with him. You are here today to be part of a family, to, to share your life with your family. To be engaged in the church, to, to be part of that broader body of Christ, to share in the glory of God. And you are here to find those people who do not yet know who Christ is, who do not yet know how to be reconciled with God, who may be struggling by just pursuing an endless list of how to live their lives but are not finding any comfort at the end of those. That we are compelled, we are instructed to say that we should go out and find those people, warning everyone, teaching them, of the wisdom that God has presented to us. And we have a sovereign, sovereign responsibility to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. That's an awesome responsibility. And it takes those last verses of chapter 1 of Colossians and moves them from the bit that I didn't want to talk about before the bit that was second fiddle to the statement of faith to say no 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 this is the entirety 
of these verses, this is the entirety of this book, is telling that there is a why here that is fundamental to your life. I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment. We're going to, we're going to pray for you all. But as we stand as a church, I want you to think about which one of those whys matters to you today. Perhaps this is the first time you've been in a church Perhaps it's the first time you've been here in a long time. It's the first time that you've heard these words spoken. And I want you to know, and I believe this with every part of my being, that your why is very simple. God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to walk in that cool garden with you. He wants to spend that time with you because you matter to Him. For those of you who've been Christians for a while, you may be wondering what... It's big churches, lots of people. Why am I here? I'm sure many of you have friends and others who would say, oh, well, I, I know God, but I just worship Him in my own way and I do that at home and I don't need to be part of a church. If you're one of those people, then I'm telling you, no, no, no. That is not the why that you were set up for. You were created to be part of a family. And when you're in this building, when you are amongst God's people, you are part of a family and that is your why. You were created to be part of a family. And if you know the comfort of being part of a family and you know the the joy of being reconciled with God, then your why is very simple. Who is it in your world? Who is it in the world around us that you need to go out and invest in to build up to help become reconciled with God to make perfect in their relationship with Christ? Who are those people in your world? Could I ask you all to stand now? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to meet together in freedom. Freedom from persecution. Freedom from from the the attacks that occur to so many other bodies bodies of the church elsewhere around the world. We thank you for the opportunity to share your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be part of your family. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for all that you have done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to pray for each of the three groups of people I mentioned before. So just ask you that you bow your heads. And if this is the first time that you've been in a church, or this is the first time in a long time that you've felt that desire to be reconciled with God, to be reconciled with the God, the Father, who wants to walk with you in the cool of the afternoon in the garden. And I'd just like you to raise your hand. No one else will see, but this is, this is just an opportunity for you to acknowledge that you want to be not just forgiven, but to come back in relationship with God. No one's looking. Some people are at the back and they'll come and just stand by you. 
Heavenly Father, I just thank you for those people now who are standing before you saying, God, I want to be reconciled with you. I want to be forgiven through the blood of Christ and to come back into relationship with you. I want to walk with you in the cool of the garden. I want to be in relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for those people who raise their hands. The second group of people I want to pray for are those people who, who are uncomfortable about being part of a family. And I just want to, Heavenly Father, I just pray for those people who, who have come to know you but haven't yet come to know the joy of sharing your love, of sharing your glory with a family. Lord, I ask that the barriers in those people's lives be taken down, that they they come to appreciate that you always had a world, a view of the world that was bigger than the one, but was, was built on the idea of a family. Lord, I just pray that you will bring healing to them and that we as a family are able to come around and, and show them what your intent was. And finally, for those people who are thinking now about the people in their lives that need to be brought perfect in their relationship with Christ. Lord, I just pray for each person in this church who is thinking now of a person or a group of people who knows that they need to be reached out to. Lord, I ask that their hearts be softened, that we are able to speak into those people's lives that we can expand your kingdom, that our family can grow, not because numbers are important, but because your family is important. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise your holy name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.